When we feel there is someone staring at us, we usually take this literally, that someone's eyes are upon us. But there are many occasions when we have that feeling and there's nobody there, no eyes to stare. What if that feeling was less caused by sense perception and more by mental attention? You are not being stared at intently. You are being thought about intently. Dear Amelia, How is New York? I do hope you and your new husband are well. I suppose I should now address you as Mrs. Butterworth from now on. I know it's been a while since I wrote to you last. I do apologise, but my mind has been rather occupied with a peculiar matter. You do understand, of course, that I recently moved into Barmy Uncle Tom's home in West Yorkshire. We visited there a few times when we were children, remember? I've enclosed a likeness of the mouldy old mansion to jog your memory. The old fox decided to leave the place to me for reasons unknown. I didn't think we were particularly close. I didn't even get the impression he was overly fond of me. Perhaps he just did it to be controversial, leaving his own offspring bereft of their inheritance. That sort of stunt would suit him. At first I was reluctant to move. Bridget and I were thoroughly contented in our Gloucester Street townhouse. We both enjoyed the bustle of city life, the glow of gas lamps casting shadows on street corners, and the calls of the paper boy doing his rounds of an early morning. Nonetheless, I was convinced to, at least, take a trip to see the place, if only to make plans to sell it off. So January two years ago, Bridget and I boarded the train to York and then took a coach to the spot. The heavy snowfall gave the place a superficial charm. It did a good job disguising the cracks in the walls, the ivy crawling through the windows and the slates falling from the roof. It was like walking towards a painting. From a distance it held together handsomely, but if you get right up to it, it looked like a mess of lines and blobs. The inside looked worse than the places I had to sleep in during the war in Crimea. Clearly, in his twilight years, Uncle Tom lost the basic ability to take care of himself. Perhaps he even went a bit batty, because when we dug through his paperwork, we discovered he had dismissed all of his domestic staff some five years prior to his passing. It seemed the decision was made in error, as apparently he lacked the capacity to manage the home under his own steam. Perhaps due to some sense of pity for the old place, or maybe Tom's battiness was a contagion floating freely in the air, we made a decision that we would sell the house. Not Tom's house, our own. And we should, through love and care, restore it to the homely, if quirky place that lived so strongly in my childhood memory. The following 17 months was a blur of paperwork, administration and stress. But in the end, the London house was sold off, our belongings were shipped, and then we ourselves made our way to our new home, which, free of snowfall, 
seemed to glare at us as we opened the front gate. As we got in, the interior was at least emptied. I had travelled up a few months before to take an inventory of what I wished to keep and what I wished to dispose of. The vast majority of Tom's furnishings and personal effects were not to my taste, so I put up for auction what was marketable and disposed of what was not. After three months of labour, the interior of the house at any rate looked like it belonged to us, and we even began to feel a bit more relaxed. In some parts we even began to take explicit pride, namely the master bedroom. Most of the decent artworks we chose to keep were in the room. The wide, plush bed felt grander than a duke's, and the carpet was a deep, sumptuous red, which came alive with the glow of gas lamps. The plush decor must have instilled in us equally intense passions, for soon Bridget made the announcement that she was with child. This really would be home if we set down roots here as a family. As I fell asleep that night, I fancied that perhaps that with love, Uncle Tom's hovel really would become our home. Waking, however, was less peaceful. Bridget was shaking me vigorously, telling me someone was knocking at the door. The sun had not yet risen, and yet when the fog of sleep had passed, I could hear an assertive rapping at the door. Justifiably grumbling, I went down in my night clothes with a candle, with the full intent of verbally bludgeoning the joker, who decided to disturb us at such an inappropriate hour. As I was coming down the stairs, the knocking seemed to be getting louder and more violent. When I opened the inner porch door, I even saw the outer door trembling. Learn some patience, I'm coming! I called out as I fumbled with my keys, now very incensed and irritable. As I tried to work with the old lock, the knocking was coming more than once every second. The door was going to come in if they kept that up. Finally, the lock clicked and I swung it open. I was met with nothing but darkness and the chill kiss of night air. Do not think me making up fanciful claims, Amelia. There was absolutely no manner or means in which any person could run away and out of sight so quickly. The last knock upon the door was within the same second of me opening it. Positively and absolutely. There was nobody there. In the moment, I did not know what to do. Should I back up and go inside or look around? What I ended up doing was standing on the porch, heart a blither until a sharp breeze blew out my candle. That made the decision for me, so I turned around and went back inside. It was only as I felt my way back up the stairs in the dark that the sense of being unsettled draped its arms around me. Despite myself, I could not, for every step, hazard a glance behind me, for truthfully, I felt that I was being watched from the shadows, even though I knew there to be nothing there. Upon lying down again in bed, Bridget asked who it was making such noise. Knowing her Irish heritage and the innumerable superstitions she entertained, I decided not to tell her the whole truth. 
I reassured her it was merely some youth playing a prank and that I scared them off. This was enough to get her back to sleep. But within my mind, there was no rest, and I offered a prayer asking the Lord to protect my wife, my house, and my unborn child from the unknown and out of sight. Even the good Lord, however, could not deliver me from the sense that I was being watched. The next month, I was focused very much upon the construction of the study. In retrospect, perhaps, I was being purposely over-focused on it, to avoid thinking about other things that had started cropping up. The most common of these incidents would occur at the bottom of the stairs, looking towards the front door. When passing through the area, the sensation of being watched grew so intense that it almost felt like I was being pushed over by its strength. Quite often, I would imagine that I spied a figure in the corner of my eye, which would instantaneously flick out of sight when I turned my head. There was many a time I would stand there, half frozen on the bottom step, my eyes darting about in a futile attempt to detect the source of the disturbing feeling. Although I never did utter a word about it to Bridget, I was convinced she was experiencing the same thing. I noticed that she would move very quickly through the area, often holding her midriff as if to protect the baby. I do not know if she was as cognizant of it as I was, but I was sure she felt unsafe there, even if she could not place why. On one afternoon, I was arranging my belongings across my new desk and polishing its surface so that it gleamed in just the way I liked it, so shiny that I could make out my unblurred reflection in it when the daylight shone in through the window. As I bent over, I heard footsteps come in behind me and settle into the small rocking chair in the corner. I assumed this was Bridget, as she made a habit of coming in and sitting there when she wished to take a break and talk a while. Hello, dear. Beautiful day it's turned out to be, I said, without looking up. There was no answer, however. This was very unlike her. Bridget would never pass up the opportunity to have a chat. Yet, she said nothing. So I put down the polishing rag and turned around, wondering if I had upset her in some way. Is something the matter, dear? I tried to say, but the words caught in my throat. The room was entirely empty. There was nobody in that rocking chair. Nobody was in sight. But there it was, the empty chair, rocking back and forth. It went on for six or so swings before settling back into motionlessness. I stared for rather too long, feeling like cold water droplets were sliding languidly down my back. It was then that my attention was drawn to the window, and out there I saw Bridget strolling in the garden, checking up on the growth of her beloved daffodils. Following that, I found every excuse in the world to not be in the study. I found myself often pacing in the kitchen, getting in Bridget's way, and yet I could not bring myself to tell her why. At this point, I was wondering whether I was truly concerned with frightening her and adding to the stress of pregnancy 
or that it was I who was afraid that she would not believe me. There was an abundance of evidence that she too was experiencing the icy touch of the strange. She had begun saying to me that she could see the silhouette of someone in the trees at the bottom of the garden when she was looking out of the kitchen window. Every time, I would lift the fire poker to menace any intruders and rummage about in the foliage, only to find absolutely nothing. She would also casually bring up how she heard me in such and such a place, walking or moving things, only for me to inform her that I was in an entirely different place at the time. She would often dismiss this as either her or I being silly. But one could see for a moment a concerned look pass over her face, and sometimes a shiver throughout her body. But one thing united all of the small, strange incidents. They came with that haunting feeling that I was being forever, eternally watched. One evening the presence, who I had started to call Eyes, was particularly notable. I was in the bath and I was enjoying a song while I washed, but for some reason I just could not get myself into the tune because I was forever distracted by seemingly nothing at all. The feeling came from the other side of the room, beside the mirror and wash hand basin. I felt eyes there, denser than the water I was bathing in. It was almost like a cold heat was coming from the air, roasting me with icicles. I dug deep inside for the courage to ignore what was patently not there, but I simply couldn't. Eyes stared, and I couldn't stop myself, fearfully staring back. Terrified of even blinking in the event that when I opened my eyes, some devil would appear there, mere inches from my face. Eventually, I couldn't even summon the wind from my lungs to utter a desperate prayer for protection. Eyes saw everything, right into my chest. My already tense bath was suddenly interrupted by a scream. It was Brigid. The animal inside me suddenly took over. I must protect my wife and unborn child. So I leapt from the tub and battered down the hallway with all my might. I tried to stop at the top of the staircase, but my feet were wet. So I slipped, landed hard and skidded along the upstairs landing floor. Help! Bridget screamed again, her voice tremulous with obvious terror. So I get up, ignoring the pain in my right leg, and limped down the stairs stopping only to grab the fire poker. I called out her name, asking where she was. I eventually found her in the kitchen. She was sprawled against the wall, her arms raised in front of her face, and her eyes rammed so tightly shut her face was a mask of wrinkles. I frantically asked what was wrong and she screams at me. A man! A man came running at me! I looked to where she was pointing. It was the other side of the kitchen, which had a door out into the garden. It was bolted shut. I turned around and went over to comfort her. I told her there was nobody there, it was all right, 
she could open her eyes. With coaxing, she came around and commented on the peculiar fact I was both naked and soaking wet. I begged her pardon as I grabbed a towel and wrapped it around my shame. It seemed that she was baking when she had been frightened, as a liberal amount of flour was strewn across the floor. I was about to insist that she clean it up, when I noticed something that made my heart palpitate alarmingly. Imprinted in the floor were three impressions of bulky boots. Beyond the pile were lighter dustings of flour brought with the boots as they moved. The prints vanish entirely at about three paces from where I found Bridget. I was shaking so much that the towel fell off my waist and I made no attempt to retrieve it. This made no sense. There was no other tracks anywhere, and no door was left unlocked. For a moment, I thought that I were about to faint like a mere woman, when the sense of being watched returned and drilled hard into the back of my head. With a lurch, I dragged myself around and was utterly relieved to find it was Bridget standing just behind me. There's a puka in our house, she whispered somberly. Later that night, my wife and I were sat in our beloved master bedroom. I on the side chair, and she was reclined upon the mattress. I do confess that harsh words were exchanged, for within us both was a great fear, not just for ourselves or for each other, but for our child. It was vulnerable in the womb to many things in our mundane existence, never mind any threats from the world of spirits and demons. So distracted were we that news of the death of Prince Albert had not even entered our conversation. There is no such thing as a pookie, I insisted to her, saying that indulging in such superstitions would do her no good, save for frightening her even further. She duly corrected me that it was called a puka. Between my protests and frustrated grunting, she explained to me that a puka was some sort of supernatural creature that the Irish spoke of, that would utterly terrify, trick and manipulate its chosen victims. She was at pains to highlight her concern that it was after the life of our baby. After a point, the argument became a gloomy silence. I felt as if something inside me was draining out through my toes. All I could do was glare at the bed beside my wife. I felt that eyes was lying there, staring at me. I imagined it grinning wickedly as it savoured eroding away at the edges of my marriage, sapping our love, our comfort, our very sense that we have a home where we can enjoy safety. In my mind's eye, I could feel it gurgling with an obscene joy as it left me no emotion other than fear of it. I would be entirely consumed other than my twisted relationship with the ever-staring, never-seen eyes. This wasn't the first time I saw it, my wife volunteered suddenly, snapping me out of my reverie. Pardon me, dear? I asked, truly not wanting to know what she was going to tell me. I'll never forget the exact words she delivered on that night. I have seen it 
thrice before. Once behind the grand piano whilst you played, a great hulking shadow. Next, standing looking out the window of your study while I was in the garden. Thirdly, while you were sleeping. It was stood beside you at our bedside. I could not make out the wardrobe through its figure. But I knew it was staring at my belly. At this time, I was forced to admit to her all that I had experienced. We were both agreed that our new home had become a prison. We were the playthings of something we did not understand, although Bridget went about the place laying out charms and saying strange prayers. I protested at first about her introducing such nonsense into our home, but I noticed that it kept her mind under control, so I let it pass. As the pregnancy progressed, the activity of eyes only increased. There was not a single moment, sleeping nor waking, where I felt like I was truly alone. Around nearly every corner, in every crevice, I thought that I saw a flickering shape of a man. A shadow which did not sit on any surface. A shadow with its own shape. The feeling of being watched was now often accompanied by the presence of an uncanny cold, which felt somehow more solid than real cold. You could touch where it started, and then where it ended. I started to envision the Pillar of Chill as I's body. It wasn't even worth thinking about just how close to me that cold could get. Unsurprisingly, the pressure became too much for Bridget, and for the sake of the baby, she left for her parents' house in London. I didn't protest. I didn't try and stop her. It was the right thing to do. And I knew what I had to do in turn. Defend our home from this invader. I did not know what I was going to do. But I was not going to be driven out of my home by anyone or anything. At least, that's what I professed to Bridget. If it were feasible, I would have sold the house off and moved there and then but so much of our finances were tied up in it that it wouldn't be possible for many years to come. Then came the first night I had spent in the house without my wife. I sat at the bottom of our bed, my mind going to places I cannot commit to writing, for the things that I saw were the work of the devil himself. I resorted to praying over and over again at the end of my bed. I prayed the Lord would hear my desperate plea to cleanse my home of that which human hands could not touch. Then the gas lamps went out. My mind quickly turned to more practical affairs, turning the lights back on as soon as possible. The only thing worse than the staring of eyes was the staring of eyes when you yourself could not see. I went and fiddled with the gas valve. Nothing happened. I'd have to call upon a technician for such a thing. Thankfully, the curtains were open, and there was a decent amount of moonlight, so I was not yet dead blind. 
I let my shoulders sag in despair. When one has reached one's lowest ebb, surely the rise is on its way. I resigned myself that the only viable option now was to attempt to sleep and simply accept the sorry state of things until the return of daylight. As I began to undress, however, the silence was exploded with the crash of something out in the hallway. Thoroughly alarmed, I darted to the door to check on the damage. I quickly realised that the window at the far end of the upstairs landing had swung open. The bang was the frame striking against the walls. I felt a sense of relief. I must have simply forgotten to fasten the latch properly. I was about to close it when I felt something through the floorboards. The unmistakable heavy compression of a footstep. I froze dead still. But a moment later, the second footstep, sounding like a great heavy boot, touched down behind me. I did not dare turn around. Tentatively, I took a step forward. A moment later, two heavy footfalls followed behind me. Then I took two steps, as did they. The boots were making sure to stay less than one pace behind me. I tried to breathe. I tried to tell myself that if I just turned around, that there would be naught but air behind me. But I felt the pressure of eyes gaze so weighty upon my soul that I thought my heart would be about to stop. What do you want? I asked the air. I did not get an answer, but I felt something like solid cold wrap long thin fingers around my waist. That was enough to crack my nerve and I ran with absolutely no regard for where I was going. I simply ran. For every step I took, it was matched by the thundering of eyes, boots from behind, keeping pace with me, right up until I impacted the windowsill of the open window I'd originally come out to inspect. I looked down, a drop of more than twenty feet. The footsteps behind me had slowed, They were taking their time now. Stump, stump, stump ever closer. It knew I had a choice. Turn around and face it, or throw myself out the window. I felt like it was thoroughly enjoying my quandary. As the footsteps stopped mere inches behind me, The fear became so intense that it almost broke. I was a cornered animal. I banged my fist against the windowsill. God help me, I burst out and wrenched myself around to face my stalker. I was greeted by nothing but the empty, chilled air. Bracing myself and begging God to give me strength, I shut the window and strode through the freezing pillar of air, disregarding the diabolical horror eyes on natural shadow body injected into me, and I returned 
to bed. Since then, many other occurrences have plagued me, but so far I have survived. But with the baby due to be born so soon, I'm pressed with the need to remedy this pestilence. So far I've tried to bring pastors and superstitious wise women to the house to help me cleanse it. God forgive me, I even asked a Catholic priest. All to no avail. So still, I am in need of aid. It might sound strange to hear this, but your new husband's family have a peculiar reputation. People say that the Butterworths know of such strange things, and perhaps even the solution to them. Perhaps, Amelia, you would be so kind as to forward this missive on to him and maybe, God willing, some light can once again shine through the halls of this house. Until then, I shall defend my castle however I can. I shall sleep in my bed and eat from my table, regardless of any eyes upon me. Awaiting your swift reply, your brother, Oliver. Oliver.